It's Philosophy Talk. This is a public service announcement with guitar. What are human rights? You have the right to food money. Do humans have the right to have things like health care, clean air, adequate shelter? You have the right not to be killed. Do humans have any intrinsic rights? Beyond whatever rights their government decides to grant them. You have the right to free speech. Are human rights universal, inalienable, or are all human rights culturally bound? Know your rights. These are your rights. Our guest is Helen Stacy, author of Human Rights for the 21st Century. These are your rights. What are human rights? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, what are human rights? Well, Ken, the American Declaration of Independence offers a compelling answer to that question. Quote, all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The the Declaration is a stirring document, and its conception of rights is rooted in the Enlightenment idea that every human being, just in virtue of being a human being, enjoys certain fundamental rights. Though not every Enlightenment thinker thought like Jefferson that rights were God-given, but most of them believed in universal human rights. Yeah, but but if if they're not God-given, exactly where is it you think they come from, Ken? Well, maybe they're just natural. Maybe they're just intrinsic to what it is to be a human being, independent of culture and all that stuff. Yeah, well, now the UN uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights says, for example, the right to rest and leisure, including a reasonable limitation of working hours and periodic holidays with pay, is a universal human right. Paid holidays are a good thing. They don't seem God-given. Do they seem universal, intrinsic, or any of that stuff? You're not suggesting, are you, John, that employers have the right to work their employees to the bone until they drop from exhaustion, are you? No, I'm just saying that somehow it seems like we need a notion of fundamental or intrinsic rights uh, that, that differ and are more basic than political or socially created rights, like the right to so many holidays. Workers don't have an intrinsic right to paid holidays, but don't we have an intrinsic right to, to life? Where certain laws and collective bargaining agreements are in place, and you have a right to certain paid holidays, but independent of that, you have the right to life, well, don't you? Well, I mean, I, the, you're getting at a good s- distinction, I think, but, you know, I think it's actually pretty hard to draw the line between rights we'd call intrinsic and rights we'd call socially or politically granted. I, I think there's a tricky line to draw. Well, I mean, if you don't like the positive explanation that they're God-given, how about the negative explanation? They're rights you have independently of any laws, agreements, or conventions. Socially or politically created rights, on the other hand, depend entirely on laws, agreements, or conventions. I I see your intuition, but, you know, I think it's even trickier than you think, because until people get together and make laws, say prohibiting murder or slavery, what would it even mean? What would it even mean to say that people have a right to life or a right to liberty? Well, saying you have a right to something is is a way of saying it's wrong for someone else to take it away. It would mean that anybody or anything that deprives someone else of life or liberty 
had done something wrong. Well, but but wait a minute. But suppose that there were no society, no force of law to back up such a claim that, you know, it's wrong for you to take away my liberty. Now, but suppose that someone had the power and desire to enslave you or to kill you. Well, then they just might do it. You could scream and foot-stomping protest all you like, but without the backing of law and society and government, your protest would amount to no more than impotent screaming. Well, it might be impotent screaming of something true, though. I mean, just because there's no government around to punish you for taking my life doesn't mean you have a right to do it. But that, that point is exactly why, in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson listed not just life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as fundamental rights, but also included the right to institute governments to secure such rights. So they do amount to more than impotent screaming. Even, even the right to rebel, to alter or abolish governments that fail to secure our hu- fundamental rights. Well, but let, let, let's come at this a different way, John. This is, it's, let's make the point a different way. Consider two different societies with two different set of laws. In one society, the law grants women full autonomy over their own bodies. In the other, the law treats women as sexual property of men. I mean, there's just two different sets of rights instituted by two different set of laws. That's all there is to it. No, it's not all there is to it. I mean, if it, you know, if one society says you get 15 paid holidays, and the other says you get 12, and the other one, the third says six, okay, that's just the laws, conventions of, of the cultures, of the societies, of the countries. But in your example, where women ha- ha- are treated like uh, chattel or, or the property of men, that society has violated the fundamental rights of its female citizens. And any government that permits such violations ought to be altered or abolished. Altered or abolished by whom? Suppose the people in that society, by and large, accept that, either be. Either for any different reason. Do outsiders have the right to alter or abolish what they regard as an oppressive government in the name of protecting fundamental human rights? Or, or would an outsider's attempt to alter the government of another society amount to just cultural imperialism? Well, you've pushed and shoved us into some delicate and difficult questions, Ken, and so we'll have to ask our guest, Helen Stacy. She's the author of Human Rights for the 21st Century, Sovereignty, Civil Society, Culture. And she's going to join us in just a bit. And we want our audience to join the conversation, too. The number is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Molly Samuel, takes a deeper look at how some basic rights can conflict with other basic rights. She files this report. In recent weeks, influential news media have devoted reams of copy to Haight-Ashbury, lately with stories of runaway youngsters swept up in a bizarre world of drugs, sex, and sloth. 1967. San Francisco's CBS TV affiliate produced this documentary about the Haight-Ashbury. It introduces viewers to a neighborhood colonized by strange young people. Long hair, unusual clothes. It was where the Grateful Dead lived, where the world's first be-in took place, the birthplace of the hippie subculture in the 1960s. KPIX Reports examines why this society exists and where it hopes to go. Since then, the hippies have gone gray, and chain stores and upscale boutiques are sprinkled in with the head shops on Haight Street. And residents are concerned about what's replaced the peace and love. I myself uh, asked two gentlemen to move. They assaulted me and, and kicked me and punched me. There was another neighbor who his girlfriend went downstairs, asked some people to move that were sitting in front of their house, and they then attacked him, and that couple since has moved out. 
Justin Buell has lived in the hate with his family for about two years. He says the people who live here don't feel safe walking the streets anymore. So he's thrown his support behind a proposed law called civil sidewalks. Known as the sit-lie law, it would outlaw sitting, or lying, on San Francisco sidewalks during the day. There's the bookstore. On Haight Street, a block from Buell's house, it's a beautiful sunny day, and the sidewalk is packed with tourists, shoppers, construction workers. Spare some change for a fat loser. And panhandlers. People sitting on the sidewalks, eating. The people we see sitting on the sidewalks seem pretty harmless. But then there's another group that uh, tend to be more nomadic, travel. They uh, tend to have pit bulls, dogs. Um, they have almost like fatigues on. Sometimes it's patchwork, jackets, and they, you can recognize pretty quickly, tend to be much, much more aggressive. Meanwhile, across town in the Mission District... We're trying to make it illegal to hang out on the sidewalk in San Francisco. Andy Blue is handing out flyers against the proposed law. The fact that they say, oh, we're only using it to target this one uh, group of people, right there shows how illegitimate the very idea of this law is from the beginning. Who does have the right to the sidewalks? Are they just for walking? And does everyone have the right to sit on city sidewalks? Is the right to walk greater than the right to block? The sidewalk should never be blocked. Activist and historian Chris Carlson, who opposes the sit-lie law, calls the question a red herring. You should be able to move through it without being harassed or yelled at or spit upon or given a hard time by anybody. Who has the right to do that to somebody else? Nobody. Carlson sees this law as a political wedge issue, an attempt to chip away at public space. We have a right to a shared experience in public, and there's no particular reason to restrict that unless somebody's breaking the law. You can't make a law that says sharing public life itself is breaking the law. That's the problem. So would banning sitting on sidewalks boost safety, or at least the feeling of safety? Would it erode our rights in a public space? Is access to public space and feeling safe in it a right? San Francisco voters will have their say when they go to the polls in November. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Molly Samuel. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.